This is DW News, live from Berlin. Deter and defend a dramatic escalation in the crisis over Ukraine. The Pentagon sends 3,000 troops to beef up the American presence in Eastern Europe. Earlier, Vladimir Putin accused the U.S. and its allies of trying to draw Russia into war in Ukraine. Also coming up, Israel backpedals on vaccine passes. Experts say they could create a false sense of security because the Omicron variant is infecting even people who are fully vaccinated. Cases still at record levels and hospitals struggling to keep up. Plus, countdown to the Winter Olympics. Rows over human rights abuses and the coronavirus rage on. Is the actual sport in danger of becoming a sideshow? I'm Lightlark. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, we open this broadcast with breaking developments. U.S. President Joe Biden has approved the deployment of 3,000 troops to Eastern Europe amid tensions with Russia. 1,000 of those troops are to be sent from U.S. Army bases in Germany to Romania. A further 2,000 will be sent from the U.S. to Germany and Poland. They're expected to arrive later this week. Well, this announcement is in addition to the 8,500 U.S. troops put on alert last month. And the Pentagon says the personnel will not fight in Ukraine, but are being sent to reassure NATO allies as concerns grow over conflict with Russia. The current situation demands that we reinforce the deterrent and defensive posture on NATO's eastern flank. President Biden has been clear that the United States will respond to the growing threat to Europe's security and stability. Our commitment to NATO, Article 5, and collective defense remains ironclad. As part of this commitment, and to be prepared for a range of contingencies, the United States will soon move additional forces to Romania, Poland, and Germany. All right, we have team coverage for you. DW's Terry Schultz is in Brussels, where NATO is headquartered, and Oliver Salat is in Washington. Oliver, want to go to you first. Why this deployment now? Has the security situation changed? Well, Leila, you just heard the Pentagon spokesperson, uh, John Kirby, uh, speak. So he basically outlines that this decision comes as a response to the ongoing Russian troop buildup, uh, not only in western Russia near the Ukrainian border, but also in Belarus. So Russia continues to send troops into the area. And that, of course, is a concern for the United States as well for its allies. And what Kirby also said is that the U.S. continues to be not sure if Putin really decided uh, to invade Ukraine, but it certainly has the capability to do so and therefore he made clear that these troops these 3,000 troops that are sent to the region now are not sent there to engage with Russian troops neither are they sent there to enter Ukrainian soil so what we are looking here at right now is a symbolic move given that some 60,000 US troops are already stationed in Europe an additional 3,000 is really not as much as a big number also, if you consider that uh, 100,000 Russian troops are waiting on the other side. So the ultimate goal here really is, uh, is a troop deployment in order to deter Russia from sending its troops to the Ukraine, to raise that price tag should Putin decide to do so, and if necessary, also to defend neighboring NATO countries. Uh, Terry, in Brussels, could we see NATO send additional resources to Eastern Europe? 
Well, Leila, every time the U.S. makes a move and says that it is in support of NATO, that, of course, boosts NATO's deterrent and reassurance effect. And certainly when you send U.S. troops, uh, it has a quality that I think anyone in NATO would would admit um, raises the stakes for Moscow quite a bit. So uh, this is in, in defense of, of NATO. Um, but yes, I do expect to see other NATO allies step up, as some have done in recent days, uh, the U.K. has announced uh, significant new deployments, doubling its forces in Estonia, for example, sending new defensive equipment. The Netherlands and Denmark are sending fighter jets and frigates. And another thing that I expect to be coming down the line later this month is that defense ministers will meet here in Brussels in the middle of the month. And I would expect that there you will see a force approved for Romania, like the enhanced for forward presence uh, units that we have now in the Baltic states and Poland. This is something Romania has asked for for a long time. France is willing to lead it. And I expect with all the pressure now from the Kremlin, the uncertainty that we will see that approved at the defense minister's meeting here in Brussels later this month. Terry Schultz reporting from Brussels and Oliver Salad from Washington. Thank you both for your coverage. Israelis may soon be able to put away their vaccine passes. Israel was one of the first countries to introduce the pass, but starting Sunday, the pass will only be required in high-risk areas like hospitals, where healthcare workers are battling record COVID-19 infections. Since the early morning, Yael Liron has been on duty on a COVID ward. An elderly patient needs oxygen and some comforting words. The COVID wards at this hospital in Tel Aviv are extremely busy. There are a lot of cases. We have new intakes every day. When one is released, another is submitted at night. Numbers are on the rise. We always experience a delay. Even when the general infection rate seems lower, we at the hospital are still dealing with the higher numbers from the two weeks previously. Though overall Omicron infection rates show signs of slowing down, the number of patients in hospital remains high. Israel was one of the first countries in the world to roll out a rapid vaccination program. Over 65% of the population have been vaccinated twice, but only 48% have had a third booster shot so far. In January, those in the most vulnerable categories were offered a fourth. During this wave, most of our patients have been elderly. It reminds us of the flu. The complications are comparable. People are dying now the way they would die from the flu. Also, fewer people are dying of Omicron. Most patients on this ward are vaccinated elderly people with underlying health conditions. Working on the ward is exhausting for everyone. Adding to this, hospitals, like other institutions, are struggling with staff shortages. Due to the highly contagious Omicron variant, high numbers of doctors and nurses are in quarantine. It's difficult. It's the fifth time we've been at full capacity here in Israel, but we're dealing with it. That's just how it is, as they say, and it's our job to look after patients. But it's definitely hard, and there's a lot of burnout among the staff. 
We have to work very hard, but we're happy to do what's necessary. But yes, it's exhausting, and it doesn't look like it's going to end soon. Although, I am personally cautiously optimistic. For now, everybody here must keep going, doing the best they can for the ongoing influx of patients and hoping that the peak of the current wave will soon subside. Earlier, I spoke to Nadav Davidovich, an epidemiologist who sits on an expert panel advising the government on COVID-19. He told us why the government decided to ditch the vaccine pass for places like restaurants and bars. The Green Pass actually was introduced uh, in order to have uh, safe epidemiological spaces. Uh, it was not introduced in order to enforce vaccinations. Vaccinations are extremely important. They saved in Israel, according to our estimates, about 20,000 deaths. Um, but currently, with the Omicron and uh, with the fact that uh, people vaccinated uh, um, they are saved probably from uh, hospitalizations and uh, death, but much less so uh, in being infected. So we need to adapt uh, the Green Pass. Uh, we don't want to abolish it uh, altogether. We want to keep it uh, also for the future if needed. And uh, currently probably this is best to have it either as a voluntary measure or when uh, you have high risk situations such as hospitals, elderly care homes, or uh, other uh, high-risk uh, activities. Um, vaccinations are very, very important. Uh, we are now in a really unprecedented situation and we need to adapt uh, the current measures uh, to the epidemiology. Uh, we need to vaccinate. We need to still use the mask, of course. And um, I think that uh, by the fact that we are adapting the Green Pass, it's very important also from uh, the trust of the public. Nadav Davidovich, uh, Israeli epidemiologist, speaking to us uh, earlier. Let's take a look now at some of the other developments in the pandemic. Germany has recorded more than 10 million coronavirus cases. More than 200,000 new infections have been logged in a single day. France started easing COVID-19 restrictions despite record case numbers. Mandatory outdoor mask wearing and capacity limits for large events are dropped. And Tonga is going into lockdown after port workers delivering humanitarian aid tested positive for the virus. The remote Pacific nation was devastated by a tsunami last month. Let's get you a roundup of other stories making world news right now. The European Commission has given the green light for some nuclear energy and natural gas investments to be labeled as sustainable. Officials say private investment can contribute to climate goals, but critics warn. The legislation jeopardizes the target of achieving carbon neutrality by the year 2050. Austria says it is considering a legal challenge to the ruling. At least 26 people have been killed in the Democratic Republic of Congo after a high-voltage power cable snapped and fell. The incident happened on the outskirts of the capital, Kinshasa. Authorities say the cable hit homes and a market, killing several people by electrocution. Women's studies are back at some of Afghanistan's universities in a significant concession by the Taliban. Colleges in and around a fifth of provinces have readmitted women, but classes are segregated. The Taliban rulers have been under pressure to improve women's rights since seizing power last year. 
Germany and the U.S. have rejected the word apartheid in connection with Israel. It comes after Amnesty International published a report accusing Israel of practicing segregation, dispossession and exclusion against Palestinians. Amnesty said its findings were based on research into seizure of Palestinian land and the forcible transfer of people. Israel has rejected the findings. Even before Friday's official opening, the Beijing Winter Olympics are mired in controversy. Concerns about human rights abuses and the high number of coronavirus cases threatened to overshadow the Games. Almost 3,000 athletes will be competing for glory. But is the actual sport at risk of becoming a sideshow? Billions have been invested into making Beijing 2022 an extravagant festival of competition. But the build-up has been about so much more than sport. Politics, for instance. Some nations, including the US and the UK, have declared a diplomatic boycott over human rights issues and will send competitors, but no ministers or officials. Meanwhile, organisers have threatened athletes with punishment for any behaviour or expression that they deem in breach of Chinese law and will expect the IOC to rigorously enforce its own rules limiting protests. In the Olympic Charter, there are very strict rules. So for the medal ceremonies and during the competitions, political protests are not permitted. On other occasions, like at press conferences or during interviews or on personal platforms, the athletes are free to express their opinions. But the athletes must be responsible for what they say. Due to Covid, athletes and journalists will be kept in secure bubbles, while no spectator tickets will be sold to the public. Organisers say health and safety are paramount. Of course, Covid countermeasures are still on top of our agenda. We have been making effective measures and everything is under control. Without a safe Games, there would be no Games. So we will make sure that the health and safety of all participants is our top priority. A total of 32 new cases were reported by Olympic authorities on Wednesday alone. As expected, the pandemic is proving to be one of several headaches for the organisers of Beijing 2022. You're watching DW News live from Berlin. Stick with us. Coming up next, a DW documentary on rethinking capitalism. I'm Leila Harak in Berlin. On behalf of all of us here, thanks for watching.
This is DW News Asia coming up today. Myanmar's government in exile tells DW talks with the military are the only way out of the crisis. Politicals problem will be solved on the table, not on the battlefield. Everybody understood that and the history of the world have proved that so. That interview with the spokesperson of the shadow government coming up shortly. Plus, living in fear, Christians in India are facing attacks from right-wing Hindu mobs and some local governments seem to approve. I'm Biresh Banerjee. Welcome to DW News Asia. Glad you could join us. A member of Myanmar's government in exile has told DW that talks with the military are the only way out of the country's political crisis. The National Unity Government, or NUG, is an administration running parallel to the junta. It was formed last year by members of the Myanmar government, which was ousted during the military coup. The NUG claims it is the only true representative of the Myanmar people and has sought recognition from foreign governments. So far, without success. And joining me now for more is Dr. Sasa. He's Minister of International Cooperation and spokesperson of the National Unity Government of Myanmar. Dr. Sasa, welcome. Your government has been trying for the past year to gain recognition from international governments, but so far has been unable to. Why is that? Firstly, the most important thing about national unity government is representation of the voice of the people of Myanmar. The people of Myanmar have clearly spoken loud and clear in 2020 elections. They have elected us to form the government by the people of Myanmar for the people of Myanmar. We have been saying to international community, particularly to free and democratic world, that it's their responsibility to recognize the will of the people of Myanmar and uphold the will of the people of Myanmar. That is the only way to peace in Myanmar. That is the only way to freedom in Myanmar. That is the only way to prosperity in Myanmar. That's why we have been talking to international communities, especially to free and democratic world, to recognize NUG. That is to end the military junta reign of terror in Myanmar. Yes, but they're not recognizing you despite your various pleas. I'm asking you why that is. We have been informally engaging and we have been engaging so many government around the world, especially we have roadblock the military junta to go to right. United Nations to represent the people of Myanmar. And now our ambassador, Ujo Mewtun, is representing the people of Myanmar in United Nations. And we have been lobbying like European Union and other government around the world to put tougher sanctions on the military junta in Myanmar. And they have right. done so for that we are thankful. But in terms of formally recognitions, we know that it's not uh, easy, uh, but it's also to do with times and territory control and what's happening on the ground, practicality, legality, and also 
politically and diplomatically. Right. Uh, speaking about all those things, let's just talk about uh, what the National Unity Government of Myanmar has done. It has asked for a so-called people's defensive war, essentially an armed revolt against the army through the so-called people's defense forces. Do you think that that is conducive to resolving the situation in Myanmar if you're asking for people to take up arms and fight the army? The fact is that the people of Myanmar have been left with no choice to live or to die. To live is to defend ourselves because the country military institution, which are built by the wealth of the people of Myanmar, they should be protecting the people of Myanmar and the country of Myanmar. Right. But now these same military institution that swear to protect the people of Myanmar are now killing the people of Myanmar. The last, the past 365 days have been every day of deaths, destructions, wholesale of devastations across the country because the military that should be protecting the country and the people are right. declaring I, I, the I war on the people I'm, and killing. I'm, so I'm sorry to interrupt, sir. I don't think I don't think anybody is making the case that the army is not that the military is not uh, killing people. I think the question that I'm asking you is: if you are also asking people to stand up in an armed struggle, how does this all end? Do you see talks with the military at some point? Do you see negotiations at some point? What is the end game that you have game planned here? Myanmar problem is political problem and the root cause of all these crises, the political crisis now spread into violence crisis, COVID-19 crisis and humanitarian crisis and the root cause of the problems political crisis. The people of Myanmar want democracy, but the military generals want military dictatorship forever. That is the two different, and now the people of Myanmar have said enough is enough for the last 60 years, have been living under oppressive, repressive military junta, military generals, right. who only kill and oppress and rape, torture. So it is, we know and understand that we cannot negotiate with the military generals for the last 60 years because they have been establishing only the military dictatorship to serve their interest. It's a selfie and narrow-minded military dictatorship that they want to establish. So it is just impossible to negotiate under their circumstances. But we recognize that political solution, conflict is not the solution to the politics. Political solution can be only solved at table. But so you are. So you. So you do see. So just to be clear, so you do see a scenario in which you see that you'll be sitting across the table and talking to the military to resolve this political deadlock. The end of the day, that is the only way forward. Political problem will be solved on the table, not on the battlefield. Everybody understood that, and the history of the world have proved that so. We know that, but this is the military that do not like the will of the people of Myanmar, but attack directly to our democracy 
and our freedom. That's where the, it's complicated. Right. Uh, we'll have to leave it there as we're running out of time. But thank you so much for joining us today. Dr. Sasa, Minister of International Cooperation and spokesperson of the National Unity Government of Myanmar. Thank you for having me. To India next, where there has been a rise in the number of attacks on religious minorities such as Muslims and Christians. Now, Christians make up just over 2% of the country's population, where the majority are Hindu. With the Hindu nationalist government in power, some states have brought in new laws cracking down on religious conversion, making it difficult, for example, for people to convert to Christianity. And some right-wing Hindu groups appear to be taking the law into their own hands. DW correspondent Nimisha Jaiswal travelled to the town of Hubali in the southern state of Karnataka to meet a pastor who has had to shut down his church in the face of continued abuse. The highlight of Pastor Somu Avradi's week has always been the Sunday service. But now, he's praying alone at his church in Hubli. It is the first time he has been back in more than three months. Last October, as the pastor was on his way to the church, he received urgent phone calls warning him that volunteers linked with Hindu right-wing groups were disrupting the Sunday prayer gathering there. They had barged in and started loudly chanting Hindu hymns. When the pastor arrived to question them, they claimed that they had proof he had tried to forcefully convert a Hindu man in their midst. The pastor said he'd never met the alleged victim before, yet he was still taken to the police station on charges of verbally abusing a man from a protected caste. I was the one who called the police. I was going to file a case against them, but they pushed me aside and started beating me. They beat seven members of my church. They entered the police station and abused and threatened me. No action has been taken against the Hindu group. It was the pastor who spent 11 days in jail and he continues to face charges. It didn't end there. The pastor's family was terrorized in their neighborhood. Their landlord threatened with harm if he didn't evict them. They were forced to move. They also had to pull their daughter out of school because she was being bullied. My children's classmates were harassing them, taunting them that their father had been sent to prison. My children were embarrassed. I had to pull them out of school. They haven't been able to return. Over the last year, Christian groups have reported a spike in similar attacks and harassment in Karnataka, especially after plans for a new law were announced. The state of Karnataka is in the process of passing an anti-conversion law which targets conversions considered fraudulent or forced. But the definition of what is illegal is very broad and the punishments very strict. Right-wing Hindu groups here strongly support the law. Manjunath Hibsur was amongst the men who stormed Pastor Avaradi's church. He alleges that Christian congregations like Avaradis brainwash Hindus into rejecting their religion or offer financial incentives to convert. The law, he says, will give them strong grounds to put an end to this. Once the law comes, we can demolish these churches. We are already prepared to demolish them, but we are waiting for the law to be passed. Once it is passed, our hands are no longer tied. We are free to take action. We can catch them and report them to the police. And they'll go to prison. For now, Pastor Avradi visits church members at home and only in areas considered safe. This man and his family were also forced out of their village after the attack on the church. But they say they find comfort in prayer. 
all they want is the freedom to do so in peace. And that's it for today. There's, of course, more from the region on our website, dw.com forward slash Asia. We leave you today with images from inside the Beijing Winter Olympics Media Center, where the Lunar New Year vibe is easily felt. Besides the decorations, a robot writing Chinese calligraphy has become the center of attraction. We'll see you here tomorrow. Bye-bye. I expropriated myself because I no longer believed that a company whose success depended on a thousand other people should belong to one single person. Meet the entrepreneurs who are putting people and the environment first. Well, I've already given up a lot of money, but I just realized that I've never been motivated by money. More sense, less greed. Next on DW. These places in Europe are smashing all the records. Step into a bold adventure. It's the treasure map for modern globetrotters. Discover some of Europe's record-breaking sites. On Euromax, YouTube, and now also in book form.